be full of fright. I dreamt that I was with the devil below in his great big fiery hall, where the devil was giving a ball. I checked my coat and hat and started gazing at the merry crowd who came to witness the show. And I must confess to you, there were many there I knew. Welcome to the Spatchist, a friendly conversation about hell and some other stuff. With me this week is my co-hosts, are my co-hosts, Jamin. Hello! Victoria. Hello! And I am Jacob, and this is episode 61 of the Spatchist, There's Something About Shale. Woohoo! I can't believe we're at 61. I know, it feels like we've turned a corner, and that corner was 60. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm glad we'll be, hopefully we'll get to 100 together. I think we will. I think we're never going to run out of stuff to talk about. <laughs> and by then, we might have gotten to the medieval era. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 we won't. Okay, good. <laughs> Gotta have goals. Mm-mm. Well, I had a great time in Dallas talking about demons. It was a lot of fun. There was like 30 people there, and it was a nice crowd. And one of the best moments, I put up a huge line that said, Mesopotamia. And there was a f- mm-hmm. six-year-old in the audience, which distressed me because <laughs> there were demon dicks. Um, and I, st- I stopped for a moment and said, are there any questions? And he raised his hand and said, what's Mesopa? <laughs> and you said, demon dicks? <laughs> I said, I'm glad you asked. Um, but that was a cute little moment. And then con security ushered them all out because they were a six-year-old in my demon panel. Yeah, that seems... Um- yeah. It seems like a lot for a six-year-old. Maybe eight? Eight-year-old? I like I six to ten I'm fine with, then thirteen to fifteen, no. Yeah. <laughs> like there's a there's an inverse curve of access- acceptability to this. I think you're right, because uh yeah, like I think it can just kind of fly over the head of a six to ten year old potentially. But not no. <laughs> So this is kind of a cold one for our demon panel in SatanCon, and we will all be together in Boston. And it seems kind of strange that we have to go all the way to Boston to be together, but that's how the world works these days. <laughs> we, we, we see each other in person sometimes. At least once a decade. Oh. At least. Yeah. Well, we need, to, we need to make that change. Yes, we are going to do some fun stuff at SatanCon, including the panel. Yes. going to go... I will make y'all go to Mike's and get uh, Italian pastries. I'm going to buy some Bahamut-related crap in the dealer's den. Well, did anybody bring anything to party today? Um, I did. And this will make sense later, (laughs) hopefully. Okay. Um, I brought a posset. Do you know what a posset is? I do. I do. It's like a a fruit and... and, and, um, Oatmeal beverage, right? It is curdled milk. It oh, is uh, oh. spiced curdled milk and lots of alcohol. So uh, it's from the Middle Ages, but oh. it might. Um, this is going to make sense later. So okay. emphasis on the curdled milk. Um, right. yes, Are we going to and... have more breast milk monsters? That came up before. <laughs> no. no, 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 no breast milk monsters. Somebody, uh, this is something even worse. Okay. Well, that's, yes. that's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yes. But there's all kinds of different recipes for posset. 
Um, sometimes it actually takes the shape of like a custard, like a non-drinking custard. But for the most part, it's um, that's kind heavy of cream. See, that's yeah. the thing. <laughs> Drinks shouldn't take shape. They should be completely uh, amorphous. It's think about it. Think of it as medieval bubble tea. Hork. <laughs> Um, without bubbles and with curdled milk. <laughs> uh, but it has heavy uh, milk or heavy cream, sugar, spices like cinnamon and nutmeg, and a significant quantity of sack, which is a sweet fortified wine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. A significant quantity, enough to make you forget about the curdled milk. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And you're supposed to serve it hot. Oh, see, I was going to say I have actually cold fig pizza. Oh. oh, that's good. Yeah, it's really good. And it's got the. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, that would actually go really good with some hot curdled milk because you've got the texture and the taste and the temperature differential. Except without the hot curdled milk, it'd be amazing. Right. I mean, yeah, a lot of things are an improvement after curds and whey go away. Mm-hmm. After you add the sack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that helps too. I did bring some entertainment. This actually sounds fun this week. Going through a circular forest filled with brimstone and over a stone building on an echoing dark hill in a wind of sparks and flames. Oh, this sounds kind of festive. Yeah, strong sense of motion and and, and uh, pomp. So, uh, what about any hell news? Uh, did did you have some? Well, it's not necessarily hell news, but it's significant. Oh, so we were wrong about Stonehenge. <gasps> What? We haven't even gotten to Stonehenge yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, we as a people, we as a, a a species have been wrong about Stonehenge. Oh. Yes. So it is not a calendar, turns out. Oh. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nobody knows what it is or what it is doing. But um, <laughs> Yeah, ahead. I just read that article. Yes. They're like, uh-huh. it's not a calendar, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, essentially, like archaeologists have just been projecting other understandings of time onto Stonehenge. So it just doesn't really line up to, uh, you know, what would probably be their understanding of time. I'm looking at it and it's only got 19 rocks and they're, Mm -hmm. you know, we have a lot more days than that. Right. And um, so it says the, 12, the alleged count, like 12, it's supposed to add up to 365 days, uh, 12 months within a year, but there's nothing that really lines up to that. And there was a really interesting term. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Also, supposedly, I guess there's been some discussion about which of these is first, like either the Egyptians or Stonehenge. As hmm. a measure of time, if they had a, a measure of time, but right, right, right. So they couldn't have, they, they, the whole accounting for leap year <laughs> couldn't right. have happened, <laughs> essentially. Right. So there's, uh, there's that. But then there was some other article that I saw that referred to some um, kind of a tendency in archaeology to ascribe meaning to numbers. Like if you... You can you can ascribe any kind of meaning you want to numbers, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what they mean. And right, so that's just right. a human tendency to like see numbers and try to figure out a pattern. 
So that's one of the explanations for why we think Stonehenge has is is a calendar, an accurate calendar. It's not. I was almost entirely certain what you were going to say is that Stonehenge was built by a farmer in the 60s. <laughs> like, well, yeah. <laughs> well, there was one outside of was it outside of Kerrville. There was a fake there was a Stonehenge outside of Kerrville, Texas for a while. I think it was Kerrville. But we had our own stone Stonehenge. Well, that's I I feel better about that because like I don't think I could set my watch by it very accurately. It's kind of large. <laughs> that's true. There's a lot of nebulous though around the actual length of the year when you get like into the pre BC because there was some argument that it was like three sixty four, I think. Mm, or mm-hmm. or it would have been a they, the ancients were upset that it wasn't a perfect three hundred sixty, so they grit their teeth and acknowledged four extra days, but declared they weren't part of the year. So this article states that, and it's an article <laughs> in Popular Mechanics because <laughs> it was one of the ones that I could find that seemed trustworthy. If anybody's familiar with the history of Popular Mechanics, um, totally but, trustworthy. Uh, the 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 phenomenon I was talking about, <laughs> it is the. The phenomena that I was talking about earlier is the numerology, which is the ability to find important numbers from ancient sources if you look hard enough. (laughs) So it says that the sarsen lintels, uh, along with the additional uh, stones on the interior, could theoretically add up to 365, but that does not necessarily account for 12 months. So I have a question. Did they sure. measure any of this in corgis? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We got to figure out. Okay. So side side project, build a Stonehenge from corgis, an accurate uh, a, a two-scale version of Stonehenge with corgis. <laughs> and baby elephants. Baby elephants. So baby elephants will be the standing stones, right, and then the corgis right. will be the lintels, right? Right, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, my my hell adjacent news for the week. This is a, a minor one, but it's kind of fun. There was a story in comic comicbook dot com about uh, Mephisto, who's probably the nearest thing the Marvel Cinematic Universe has to the trickster devil or Satan, uh, making an appearance right. in. Mm-hmm. in Thor, Love and Thunder, but it was cut out. And they showed pictures of the makeup job. And I, when I see Mephisto, he's got like spiky hair and a real serious rock star album cover vibe going on, uh, a nice six pack. And he just kind of looks like a devil. Uh, this mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. guy looks like someone who's going to steal your Cheez-Its. <laughs> <laughs> Are they the extra toasty ones? They may be. They may be. I it's want just, my Cheez-Its. The, yeah. the, this, this Marvel, this, this Mephisto has, has a more Guardians of the Galaxy style costume and look. Kind of yeah. more, more built for humor than horror. That's me right there. Yeah. <laughs> in a nutshell. That's, that was in my, uh, my senior photo. That was my Built for humor, not horror. <laughs> not for horror. I like the work you've had done in your nose. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, so I was going to try to make some joke about, you know, who his main enemy is. Mm-hmm. Cheese, it's Christ. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it only makes sense after your cheese, it's comment. So, right. Wow. It's Otherwise- very, it's a very local joke. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's meta, it's a micro it's a micro joke so this week we're going to be talking about ancient jewish interpretations of hell in the afterlife generally but mostly hell because that's in the title i, I wanted to begin by getting kind of a sense of what the modern interpretation of the afterlife is in the Jewish faith. We're going to be dealing with a lot of sweeping generalities today, so you know, let's just put that out there. And of course, we are freely encouraged to be wrong. But I spoke to one of my Jewish friends after reading some commentaries and watching some videos, and it feels very much like the Jewish faith is more focused on today, like first off, kind of the law and the people and how those interact. And secondly, culture and community and coming together. And thirdly, like our history and then a very distant fourth, the afterlife. Like it's not really out there. And I've heard a lot of people say there is no afterlife in the Jewish faith. I don't think that's right, but it's it's downplayed and not very, it's very sidelined compared to how big it is in Christianity where it tends to be like the number one thing or maybe the number two thing on a bad day. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I found all of this really, really interesting and very confusing. How so? I There's so many different moving parts. Yes. <laughs> and yes. different names for different places and mm. layers. And yeah, um, it's it's intriguing. Yeah. Um, it's like mm-hmm. a thousand years. And that's a, a, yes, a thousand mm-hmm. very explodey years, and and Greece and Persia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the one thing I held on to that helped was initially, and this this goes to just what you were saying. The initial idea of like it wasn't a place of punishment; it was just a holding cell, essentially. <laughs> yeah, but over time, until Christianity or yeah, you know, we- Greeks made it a yeah a punishment it had to change i mean that mm-hmm. was kind of i don't know inevitable <laughs> right. so the mm-hmm. the context for this afterlife developing was kind of in the canaanite mesopotamian assyrian world where the afterlife was basically your basic dust-filled gray box of souls everyone went there but it was not a good place and you could find ways to make it a little better like ancestor worship could kind of give you a get it out jail free card or make your stay a little more pleasant. Uh, that was true in Egypt as well, I think, to degrees. There was ways, ways of mitigating the bad of the afterlife. Mm-hmm. But for the Israelite faith, before the Jewish faith, it was, um, it was a big gray box and you went there. And for the most part, that was it. Like you didn't get back up again. There wasn't really the hope of the resurrection. God didn't really show up there. It was kind of like neutral to unpleasant. And then it kind Mm -hmm. of gets gradually more unpleasant as time progresses. The word I keep wanting to use is punitive, right? Like, we grow progressively more hell is punishment than hell is just the end, the second end. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. let's let's not use the word hell because it's just not going to be Oh, you're right, yeah, yeah, the the afterlife, the... The other place. The soul box. The soul yeah. box. Yeah. Souls. The, the do dusty talk about, soul box. Do you want to talk about souls for a bit? Oh. I do want to talk about souls, but I also want to say that it's interesting. One of the things I found interesting is that because Shale, is, is, should I say it Shale? Shale? I've been doing Shale, and I'm not sure Sheol. that's right. 
Let me look it Sheol. up. The internet says Sheol. Sheol? Okay. Sheol. So, yeah, that, that Sheol as a place of forgetting or separation, just separation <clears throat> from life, separation from God. But I had this really good quote in um, this article uh, by Timothy McDermott. The, and here's the quote. The Israelites' hope was not for a new life after death, but for a full life before it. So that kind of says something about a worldview. Yeah, yeah. Which is, which is cool. But talking about souls, let's talk about souls. I'd love to. So, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so it's really hard to know when the notion of the soul came up. Um, and here's something for you, Jamin, that the word nephish originally meant neck or throat and later came to imply the vital spirit or anima. But also we have the word ruach. Um, is that how you say it? Ruach? Ruach? R-U-A-C-H? Ruach? What languages um, is this? So ruach, I think, well, nephish is, that's Hebrew. Okay. And um, anima is Latin. Mm-hmm. We've talked about ruach before, which meant, which means wind. But it actually, like, uh, all of these things start to refer to the whole range of a person's emotional, intellectual, and volitional life. See. So, it even designated ghosts. Ruach, oh. I could believe, because you've got the Greek, mm-hmm. kind of the, the pneuma. Mm-hmm. Right? The the breath. Not the, the, the mm-hmm. pneuma with a P, not the N. Right? Right. So, I could see that. The, the breath being the soul. It's, mm-hmm. it's interesting in a sense, maybe not interesting, how we really kind of reduce the soul down to one component. And I think Egyptian myth had like 67 different souls, you know. Yeah. And um, that there's there's five levels of the soul in this category that I'm talking about. So we have the Nefesh, Ruah, Nishama, Chaya, and Yahida. Mm-hmm. And so each of those has five sub-levels oh, or no. aspects. So we're kind of getting to that level of... How many souls did you say there were? Well, I made up the number 67, but now I, <laughs> it might actually be valid at this point. I know. Somebody get a calculator. But yeah, I don't think we need to list all of these. But uh, Oh, um, no, let's do it now. Let's, let's have <laughs> this <yeah>. out. <laughs> but they're all kind of folded into one another. The highest levels ascend uh, above after the decom. Uh, the decomposition of the flesh. Mm-hmm. So again, this goes to the idea of having to, of excarnation, where you have to, the flesh has to decompose before the soul actually is freed. But the lower aspects stay below the, or they're often called the vapor of the bones, and or, or, or the 28, 288 sparks of holiness, those stay below Hmm. And so those remain with the bones until the resurrection of the dead. Jacob, you look like you're. I'm just curious about 288 sparks of holiness and where that comes from. Isn't that the number of bones mm-hmm. in the body? Um, Not counting your teeth? Your outside bones? Yeah. To be fair, I'm not a bonologist. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a word for that no it's it's not it's 72 again 288 oh. is 72 times four. Oh, right okay yes. wait yes. 200 okay. how so many, many bones are in the body what's the big number 288 that's 144 times two okay yes 
And 144 is 72. Is times 2. 12 times 12. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which is so gross. It's a gross. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe someone else knows my only math joke. I'm sorry. No, I'm proud of you. Can I tell you about a very special bone? Yes. Since we're talking about the actual this this soul the, the last the soul the bone. lowest yeah. the soul bone. The so do you know about life? the soul bone? I don't. I read your notes but was confused. <laughs> Please explain. So the- the, bo- the bone of, of loose. Mm-hmm. Do you know anything about the bo- bone of loose? No. So this is an idea from rabbinic Judaism, and it is, and it's a big part of the evolution of ideas about the, of the concept of death. And so it's the bone of loose, or Judenuchlin, as it uh, is called in early German. Um, but Rabbi Oshea had it. He affirmed that there was a bone in the human body just below the 18th vertebra. And so sometimes that's identified with the Cossacks mm-hmm. that never died. So it's this bone that, that lives on. It couldn't be destroyed by water, fire, or any other element, And it couldn't be broken or bruised by any force. So the understanding is that God would use this bone um, in the act of resurrection so it would be kind of this seed that would coalesce all of the other bones um, to form a new body. And then the breath of the divine spirit would enter the body and you would be raised from the dead. So any any questions? I feel like a lot of these, teach- <laughs> these teachings get very rarefied. This is uh-huh. the, the resurrection bone? The resurrection bone. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And... The name of the bone is derived from loose, loose, an old Aramaic word meaning almond. So that's why they've located the bone to be like around the Cossacks because mm-hmm. there's it's either the shape of the bone or it's the texture of the bone because that bone has kind of a perforated look to it, oh. which is like the outside of an almond. But so I disagree. You disagree. Tell me. Tell I disagree me why. that it looks anything like an almond. <laughs> okay, how many I mean, how many vertebra are there? Seventy two. <laughs> I think there's a that's a giraffe, right? Oh, thirty three. Right. Okay. Thirty three. Okay. So the eighteenth is, is right in the middle. Um, give or take. Is that right now? Let's see. Do you start from the top or the bottom? It's supposed to be near the Cossack switches at the bottom. But are there 33 vertebra? I guess there are. I mean, I... So why do they say 18? I said it before. I'm not a bonologist. Just below the 18th vertebra. But it's supposed to be near the Cossacks. And, but there's some, some, some people actually think it's at the top of the spine, too. So right underneath the brain. And another reason why people think that it's there is because the Zohar states that the loose appears as like the head of a snake. So kind of like the sacrum. And that also is aligned with, like, supposed to be looking like an almond because of the texture. So this this so. resurrection bone is kind of the seat of a soul, or it's yes, like- it's it's yeah, it never dies. So it is kind of like the little spark that is used to bring your body back to life, right? Because corporeal resurrection was a thing that was like yes. a big thing. Okay, 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 yep, yep, interesting. Yep, yep, yep. Can I tell you a quick recipe for resurrection oh, no. when it actually happens? <laughs> yes. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, so this is, get ready, get ready. 
Six six ounces of pure nod. (laughs) It is like a little cocktail. Okay, so here's this is a quote from um, Kabbalah Online, and it says uh, this is from the uh, some of this is from the Zohar. Uh, for all the while that the body is decomposing in darkness, it awaits the illumination that it that it will receive from the dew. When that happens, God will use the loose bone to rebuild the newly resurrected body. This is the meaning of the sage's statement that the loose bone remains intact forever. So, um, let's see. Okay, here we go. <laughs> so, Rabbi Shimon said, come and see what is written um, regarding the resurrection. Remember, please, that you fashioned me like clay, and you will return me to the dust again. What is, uh, what is written immediately following this? Quote, you will pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese. You will clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. After a person's body decays in the ground and the time of the resurrection of the dead come, the Holy One will take that bone that remains and process it like dough, and the cheese is curdled from milk. The bone will then be mixed with the remainder of the body, and that is already decomposed and become dust. And that bone then will also become liquid like milk. It will then be curdled and given a form like cheese is curdled out of milk. Oh, this is Skin, a lot. flesh. <laughs> now I understand. Now I understand. Finally. Finally, skin, flesh, sinew, and bone will then be stretched over it. This is the meaning of the quote, you will pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese. Okay, which we all use. I mean, I see that on Hallmark cards every day. (laughs) It's like, happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) Mom, you poured me out like milk and curdled Curdled me like cheese. Curdled me like cheese. (laughs) So it seems that Sheol was a really uniquely Jewish or uniquely Israelite afterlife. Um, Mm -hmm. It didn't really have any attestation to speak of beyond that. I think there's a mention in some Egyptian text somewhere for the, for the most part, it's the darkness of the grave. The word means euphemistically death. It's occasionally used as a proper noun, but almost always in the sense of kind of metaphorical interpretation of death, sometimes paired with uh, destruction God is is variously there and not there. Like kind mm-hmm. of God is everywhere, but people in Sheol, um, when they when they pray, their prayers are not answered by God. It's kind of defined as the furthest point from God, like the bottom of the celestial sphere with God at the top. Mm-hmm. One descends to Sheol. One does not come out of Sheol very easily. There's a few resurrections, but they're really far and few between. Mm-hmm. So, uh. is it a place or is it a metaphor? Um, gosh, why does it have to be one or the other? It's a place, it's a metaphor, and sometimes it's a person. It's, yes, it can be both a floor wax and a dessert topping. Do you ever watch the Esoterica podcast on YouTube? No. It's got Mm -mm. really, it's a kind of rabbinical dives into all kinds of mystical. He's got a great video on translating grimoires. Uh, But I watched his video, What is Shale? Uh, This is Dr. Justin Sledge of Esoterica. And one kind of things he points out, and I think this shows the lack of importance of afterlife in this cosmology is in the Hebrew Bible, there's about a thousand times that death is mentioned, but only about 66 times is shale mentioned. So mm-hmm. it's really not that big a deal. I mean, people talk about death as a cessation of life, as a way of losing your, your friends or whatever. It's a sad thing. But the afterlife, it's just dull. 
and it doesn't get a lot of coverage, at least in the older stories. Yeah, it's interesting because it seems like the references start out almost like a metaphor, more down, like a, it's a metaphor for death. And then it starts to become kind of more um, like a place or a thing that, you know, more like a hellmouth where it's devouring or it's hungry for for souls right. or for the dead. Absolutely. And that happens more and more as you get to year zero. It's the, mm-hmm. uh, the Isaiah's and Ezekiel's really start invoking this more monstrous version of Sheol. It seems like it mm-hmm. may be derived from Mot again, the kind of the, the hellmouth god from older Israel. Mm-hmm. So far as, as what it means, there's kind of a funny story about that. Um, so the NIV Bible is like one of the most popular Bibles. It's probably like second to the King James Version. A guy that was at the head of the NIV Bible Translation Project, his name is R. Laird Harris, really didn't like the idea that Sheol was an afterlife because it's so different from the Christian afterlife, which is kind mm-hmm. of judgy and forever, whereas Sheol is just box forever. Uh, he liked it so little that he insisted on translating it only as literal death. So there's a major afterlife concept, which is Sheol. It's largely left out of the NIV Bible entirely. Tacky. Tacky that. (laughs) Um, Well, going back to the idea of it being kind of the furthest place from God or Yahweh, there's also the sense of like, it's very confusing because it's several things at once. Like, okay, so you're separated. You forget everything. Do you forget God? Do you forget earthly what's happening on earth? But then some places there's a remembrance of that or an awareness of what's happening. Yeah, that kind of heightened, heightened mm-hmm. awareness that you get in like Dante's Inferno. That turns up. Exactly. And there's still like necromancy actually was a thing of trying to bring people out of shale too mm, yeah. there's the whole story of the witch of endor right um, who summons mm-hmm. samuel and and turned him into a god thing like they turned yeah. him into into an elohim mm-hmm. yeah yeah so also there's the idea of it as being a family tomb she- and the family generally? being humankind yeah oh well, sort of being a tribal tomb yeah i mean when your family is more defined as kind of your extended religious community that's mm-hmm. you can have kind of a single narrative for it like that could it also be a person? It did sort of take on some personification, like in the Ezekiel mm-hmm. period where you start getting like apocalyptic writing, uh, Sheol was described as being hungry mm-hmm. or, or bottomless or something. Again, kind of taking on that hellmouth thing. I don't think it ever had the personification level that like Hades did, where you actually had, you know, a person wearing a hat that represented the afterlife. But it did sort of have this idea of being a living creature. Again, all of that is kind of in the 200 and onward period. Because there's also the idea that it may be a deity, uh, specifically Shawala. Oh, there was a deity named Shawala. Sh- oh, name? Mm-hmm. Help me with that one again. Shawala. Shawala. S-H-U-W-A-L-A, also called Alani. And or, I, or they may be separate things. They may be the same goddess. Right. Like maybe that goddess was an aspect of... Maybe that goddess was an aspect of the Mesopotamian goddess of the dead, whose name is eluding me right now. And then it kind of got translated or, or transliterated into Sheol and became kind of this this regional non-space. Mm-hmm. There's an awful lot of 
kind of going back to, is it a thing? Is it a place? Is it a person? There's an awful lot of ideas that are kind of abstract that are conceptualized in a way that makes them sound like entities. I mean, this happens so often. Mammon is kind of greed, but it acts like a a, a critter. Mm-hmm. Destruction, Abaddon becomes a critter, and Belial is lawlessness that becomes a critter. And so kind of navigating the vagueness between the the metaphorized concept and the, the creature it becomes kind of becomes like, what are we talking about? And that seems to happen over and over again. So the Shawala came after the concept of the place or was an older was mm-hmm. might this is in the in the category of might have been mm. but it was a it was she was a Ugritic goddess Canaanite yep. goddess Ugritic mm-hmm. yeah who was kind of reinterpreted or whose name became the word for shield there may not be a direct link there beyond um, beyond that the name kind of was was used yeah so right 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 uh, Sheol is sometimes assumed to be the Hebrew der- a Hebrew derivation of Shawala's name. But yeah, so she's a part fits into that whole uh, concept of Sheol being related to other death deities like Nurgle, Reshkigal, and Mott, which you had mentioned yes, earlier. Yes, but could not remember mm-hmm. the names of. Well, there you go. Teamwork. Initially, Sheol was not judgy. It seems like it started off being Greybox. And it's over time, as we kind of moved more into the Jewish faith from the Israelite faith, it became the not nice gray box. Mm. And you mm-hmm. started getting like chains and bars in there that would kind of divide people up. And sometimes it was the big dubious box where the bad people were a little bit lower and further away from God, but they weren't really in any dire straits beyond what all dead people were in. But that started changing in a, you know, bigger way around the Isaiah Ezekiel period. So like 400 to 300 ish, you start getting a divide in between you start getting into a more punitive mode. Um, Isaiah 26, 14 talking about the enemies who have conquered us, which is a huge list of people because this region was getting conquered over and over again. Mm -hmm. They are dead. They shall not live. They are deceased. They shall not therefore rise. Therefore hast thou visited, destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. It's one read of death. But talking about Yahweh's people in the same space, and I think the word do comes up again. Thy dead mm-hmm. men shall live, together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, for their dew is as the dew of the herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Mm. So this also leads to the idea of resurrection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I th- the curdled milk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the curdled milk. That's, that's how <laughs> I think of resurrection. Mm-hmm. One kind of when you say something like there is no Jewish afterlife, one element of that is that um, there's no immediate judgment of the dead. It's something that happens in 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 the millennium when we get to the next big place. There's a word for it. The second wait, second death. Or? Yeah, the second. It's like that because it's connected to Gehenna, right? The because that's also the place of the second death because it's purgatory. Allegedly, right? it has it has some purgatorial elements to it. Sometimes the word was alam haba, which is the the final judgment and final musical number at the end of creation. <laughs> yeah. So there is. So really, there isn't any 
awareness of the afterlife people are in less like storage unit for the dead souls until mm-hmm. they get to this this the musical number and there once you're in the more apocalyptic mode the righteous ascend into heaven and the bad people uh are either destroyed utterly or they just drift on into remorse and endlessness um but the further you go down this road the more the jewish afterlife for bad people resembles the christian hell and people go and burn there mm-hmm so this sounds like we're heading to Gehenna. I think we've been heading to Gehenna for all of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> Which, okay, so explain, because I have several and several misunderstandings about Gehenna I under have my so belt many misunderstandings. so far. <laughs> I will do what I, the best I can, given that I researched mm-hmm. this in 30 minutes. Oh, don't admit that. Gehenna is mostly <laughs> intertestamental. Um, okay. it's, it's, it's mostly Persian exile period. So we're talking kind of 500 and beyond over time. Sheol actually kind of fades from mythology a little bit and Gehenna takes a more active role. Mm-hmm. Although the, really the doctrine of hell would be settled for like another 700 years or so in like the early middle ages. But Gehenna starts out as kind of a borderland between Judah and Benjamin's people Early on, it's just it's just a region, it's a valley surrounding Jerusalem. Uh, I want to take a quick pause here and kind of go back to the idea that Jerusalem is the seat of this entire religion and the central kind of identity hub for the growing Jewish people as a people. There, there's there's Israel's neat and Edom is interesting and all that, but Jerusalem is kind of like it's like Wall Street describes all of finance. Jerusalem kind of describes the heart of the Jewish religion in this in this period. And it's very different from us to think that the religion is in a city. Mm-hmm. But Gehenom, Gehenom, the Valley of Hinnom, was a valley mostly surrounding like the south and east side of, of Jerusalem. One story is that it's Ben Ginnom's property. Uh, I, I, that, that feels a little folk etymology, but like, Valley of the Son of Hinnom is a translation of it. So maybe it was Ben's property. I don't know. Hey, this is Jacob. I know that Ben is not a first name. It was a joke that didn't fly very far. (laughs) Anyway. So this borderland is likely where a sacrifice that's been called Tophet takes place. And apparently the kings of Judah sacrifice their children by fire. Archaeologists have kind of looked at other areas of the Levant and seen there was evidence of child sacrifice. And so the Tophet is probably not an exaggeration. It's probably something that happened in, in bad times, maybe. In the Bible, the Valley of Hinnom is said to be a place where the sacrifice was performed uh, as a sacrifice to Baal. Although, I thought it was Moloch. Well, I, I didn't get there. It was sometimes a sacrifice to Baal. Some commentators have said that that was probably Yahweh because, you know, just blaming it on Baal, blame the Baal. Moloch is involved, but it's ambiguous. And this is one of those, is it a name? Is it a person? Is it a place? Moloch is tied to the word MLK, which is kind of a word meaning sacrifice. So is Moloch just the idea of sacrifice by fire or is it a God? That depends on who you ask. I think it's, I think it's ambiguous. There's that thing again. It's like, is it the thing or is it the person that did the thing? Right. And and Moloch MLK is is a very big that. So 
I also read that Tophet can also just refer to large cemeteries. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. the word kind of means a place of sacrifice, a place of death, mm-hmm. and the sacrifice itself, depending on what day of the week it is. Honestly, this is really nice that all these words don't, not only have huge ambiguous meanings, but they have no vowels, so that makes it extra right. Fun. And then they were all translated. I think, yeah, vowels add meaning. Yeah. And they were all translated out of Hebrew into Greek. So double your fun. In the intertestamental period, the word Gehenom starts popping up as Gehenna or Gehenom stops being a place name and starts being a concept name. Working with the Greek folks and their ideas of the afterlife probably sped this up. So mm-hmm. in some rabbinical works, Gehenom was created before the earth or on the second day of creation, because its importance as this kind of purifying fire, purgatory, place of death or something was so important that it was a part of God's plan all along. Mm -hmm. And we're really starting to get out of geography and into mythology at this point. Speaking of geography, I actually Mm -hmm. just looked, and I mean, we've we've said it, you know, a hundred times, Gehenna was a valley to the southeast of Jerusalem, right? Yeah. I went to Google Maps and I turned on Terrain View. And there's literally, it's like Ben Gehenna Street, and it's literally a valley to the southeast of Jerusalem. I'm like, oh, it, it's exactly what we said it was. It's a park now. Yeah. Parts well, of it. it's, a, it's a big valley. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is the idea that the fires of hell are tied to the fires of Gehenna because this pit of like cadavers and garbage was always burning and they kept the flames going forever. So it had this image of everlasting disgusting fire um that's probably not accurate that's like a year 1200 thing apparently at least that's what wiki says saying it's from a commentary on the psalms by rabbi david kimmy 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 no one could sustain fires that long without uh artificial gas sources well it's kind of like the tire fire in the simpsons right (laughs) still burning (laughs) those oil field fires yeah yeah. that, that have been so, yeah, but you need some kind of fuel. But so the fire could be either like punishing or it could be cleansing. Oh, right? yeah. Because right, the height, like, right. there's the passage from Isaiah that describes what the day of judgment would be with like God, God being the fire essentially or bringing, bringing the fire. But one of the, and I don't know if this is taking us off the path, but. Also, your period of purification or punishment is not forever. It can be shorter. Mm-hmm. It could be uh, 12 months. Yeah. And every Sabbath is excluded from the punishment, so you get every Sabbath off. Right. So, but, but some people have not had that benefit. They've been given the eternal. One person in particular hasn't had that benefit. That is Jesus. Right. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that earlier. That one that one was, was good for a momentary laugh. Worth remembering, Jesus is not the be-all and end-all of the Jewish faith. Uh, he's a sideline in that one, if, if, if he gets a mention. Mm-hmm. But he was kind of like Socrates, who's kind of a nuisance preacher. And so there's a special realm in Gehenna called... Is it the poop realm? It is the poop realm. There's a special realm in Gehenna called... So a Rudashat, I think that's right. And this is a place of filth and sewage. Uh, I think the word translates literally into boiling excrement. 
And it's a place where people that scoff at wise people go. And Jesus might have been a scoffer. So there's at least one story where he turns up in this place. Someone's saying, hey, what are you doing down there? And he says, oh, I'm uh, boiling an excrement. You know. <laughs> you know. Yeah. As you do. But uh, you don't get a- fun of the wise guys. Yeah, he did. And you don't get a break there. Like there is no, there is no Sabbat thing down there. It's, it's the worst. But you know, you do know what the, the souls get to do or the, um, the folks who get the Sabbath off, they get to actually roam the earth. I know. Their it's, spirits get to roam the earth. And then the angel, uh, Duma comes and rounds everybody up. Do they like get into hijinks or do they just, are they just out? It's like Halloween. I just, it's like Rumspringa, <laughs> where they just like go and <laughs> they make out, drink, do heroin. I don't know. Rob Banks. <laughs> Zany hijinks. That's what this Play is. Play Parcheesi. But the, the other interesting thing, I mean, this goes back to whether or not it's also just a place of, well, if you're there for 12 months, then you go to um, the world to come right? Which is made up of the two gardens of Eden. And that's where you get to like hang out with God as he reads the Torah. So I don't know about that. Is the world to come the judgment and then the happy place? Or is it the happy place? I think it might be. It's the be. judgment yeah. and then the happy place. It's, it's, the, mm-hmm. it's the, the end of days in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like the Egyptian idea of, you know, eventually, like once you get all the way through the maze, then you get to hang out with What's his face? <laughs> Doug. And, yes, you get to hang out with. I cannot remember the name of. This is very similar because you get to hang out in Gan Eden where God explains the Torah to you. So you get kind of the, you know, you get all the spoilers at that point. Is that like mansplaining for all of eternity? Because <laughs> I think so. I, don't, like, I can't handle well, it. Well, actually. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Uh, but it's called Olam Haben, the world to come. And yeah, so it's related to the two gardens of Eden, uh, paradise and God Eden. And that's the place where God mansplains the Torah to you for all eternity. But supposedly not making it there is the greatest punishment of all. So you're not going to where your ancestors are or your or Yahweh is. So I'm assuming my ancestors are there. That's kind of a stretch. <laughs> well, you know. Sheol was sometimes described as boxes, like boxes and cages and things like that. Containers, I guess the coffin idea may be kind of feeding into that. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, Gehenna is empty in in a lot of stories because it's waiting for the next thing. It's waiting for this end of days. Uh, mm-hmm. Until then, it's just a big empty space, but it'll be filled after the final judgment. Another interpretation of it, it's a little less um, here and now. <laughs> yeah. I found that super, I don't know, super, super interesting that that it was kind of like a little a little hotel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? With vacancies. Um, right, right. And, you know, you sort of get let out for a little while. You get to go on your little rumspringa. You get rounded back up by the, by the angel. And then you have another week of torment. And then you just go toddle out again. Why is it empty if it's based on a valley full of flaming tires and corpses? Well, that doesn't come around in 1200. Uh, oh. it's, 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 a, it's a valley that's associated with the flame in Gehenna is more the like after ideas of the sacrifices and the, the wrongness from those that infected it. So like the fire mm-hmm. is more about the Tefet and the, the Moloch stuff, that, that nightmare. 
They did the flaming pile of garbage is, is a lot later on. But it is very strongly the destructive side of death. And so you will occasionally get like death and destruction together. And it's, that's, that's kind of a pair. And this is really the more like Sheol is neutral. Gehenom is, is, is worse. Like that is either destruction or burning, depending on who you ask. Over time, like by the, by the time the New Testament rolls around, it's really soundly a synonym for hell. It's, you know, kind of safe for the Greeks translated as that. Uh, it's a place where his body and soul could be destroyed in fire. And that's, that's a very hell image. Maybe part of that also is that the Romans were practicing cremation there, and nobody really liked the Romans, but they used uh, Gehenom as a place for cremation in like 70. And cremation, 70. like we, we don't like cremation because... Takes you away from your family, maybe. You can't be resurrected. You can't be resurrected because you're you're scattered to ashes, right? Mm-hmm. You, except that bone. Oh, right. The, the bone, bone can't be destroyed by fire. Yeah, as long as mm-hmm. that one's safe, you're, you're probably good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gehenna gets tossed around with other words from hell. Sometimes it's paired with Hades, and they're separate. So Hades is kind of its own thing. That's a little bit more like Sheol than fires of of Gehenna were. At various times, Hades, Sheol, Gehenna, Infernos, the Netherworld all seem to be used with different contexts and different connotations, different degrees. Over time, I don't, I don't, I don't think that Gehenna really makes it very seriously into the New Testament. It gets used like eleven times in the Gospels in ways that are distinctly hellish. Matthew in, to the Pharisees, "You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of Gehenna?" But it does make it into Islam, where it's used. More than 11 times. It's used like 77 times in, in the Quran. Sheol is not mentioned at all. One of the gates to hell is supposed to be in the Jahannam, which is kind of used the same root word. And while there is an eternal hell for Muslim sinners, Jahannam itself, the top layer is going to be destroyed someday. So it has a certain temporary element there too. So I don't know Islam well enough to say whether that's a purgatorial idea or not. But the idea of hell being destroyed has antecedents. Hmm. Someday death may die. Uh-huh. So, is this a good place to talk about Tartarus? Yes. Okay. That's what you yeah. get when you don't brush your teeth, right? Yes, exactly. And it's also a call box that travels through. Oh, yeah. Time that's, and space. Oh, that's true. Oh, right. That's true. It's blue. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I got right. that reference. So, so it's, it's both of those things. So, it's the place where fallen angels are temporarily imprisoned. Yes. Correct? Yes. Temporarily? Yes. So, before the judgment. Yeah. So, then this actually kind of goes to the moment where we stop thinking about Christ as a conqueror of death, but then Christ as a conqueror of Satan. This is where the element of Satan comes in, right? Tartarus is definitely a place where demons burn. Um, mm-hmm. It is kind of linked to the idea of the uh, at the end of Revelations, where the devil is going to get shoved in, and where the like weird goat-faced giraffe-nosed locusts come from, <laughs> like it's it's like a gate to a very demonic hell. Uh, yeah, this is tied uh-huh. to the roots of Tartarus, which are very Greek. Mm-hmm. In in the Greek afterlife, uh, I don't know which version because it changes over time. There was. A bad place for people, a good place for people, a neutral place for people. But Tartarus was where the Titans were imprisoned. Mm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they were going to be punished and burned forever. There were some really, really bad people that ended up there as well. But for the most part, it was like 
big big monsters and people that had specifically given Zeus the middle finger. Mm-hmm. And uh, Enoch doesn't specifically reference Tartarus, but the verb for throwing the Watcher Angels into the fiery pit is Tartaru. Tartaru! I think I referenced this article earlier by a guy named McDermott. So he, and this was in a, this was in Blackfriars Magazine, which is a Catholic tinged, but well-respected journal. Okay. Um, but he talks about uh, Tartarus as the unredeemable death. So that's, it, it actually, we've made it to represent our refusal of the gift of life from Christ. So it's kind of like, I guess, kind of like Dante, like the Inferno, like, the only thing keeping you there is you, <laughs> I, in certain ways. I feel like of all the words that have been transliterated as hell, Tartarus is probably the one that should not have been. Mm, like, it's okay. very specifically where the Watchers go, where the Beast of Revelations goes, and mm-hmm. his followers, so that's in, like, late John. But, like, over and over again, this is a place that is like mythic in scope and not meant for people. So calling it hell is, it just doesn't feel right. So then, I mean, people are always redeemable then, but these other creatures are not. Titans aren't redeemable. Mm Mm-hmm. Does that kind of, does that sort Mm. of follow? I mean, they're kind of the worst, except Prometheus, Mm. who's also kind of the worst in his own special way. Damn you, Prometheus. Um, and I think that the Watchers are going to burn, burn, burn forever until they get moved to a different place to burn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. But yeah, this is a much bigger hell. It's like a, it's like an antechamber of hell reserved for like the big, big baddies. Like most common people would just be in the people boxes, not not here. So I, right. I, I, I think I disagree with the idea that it's the irredeemable portion of us because I don't think we should ever have been here in the first place, except people with truly massive egos, maybe. <laughs> Right, right. So, yeah, one of the things that I struggled with was the relationship, like all of these things, like I kept wanting to fit them all together and create sort of a a hierarchy, but that just seems undoable. I think that sometimes these places are, and it depends on who you ask and when you ask, which I think is going to be my catchphrase from now on. (laughs) These places are like antechambers and subchambers and below chambers of Sheol. Like mm-hmm. in, in, in Greek land, um, Tartarus was kind of below the everything. And maybe maybe Tartarus here is kind of a below the everything. I know that Gehenna or Gehenum is, is seen as a suburb of Sheol sometimes as well. I, I'm sure it depends on who you ask because there probably isn't really a map. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, uh, a lot of my or several of my readings mentioned some hell journeys <laughs> so i mean we could spend uh we could do a whole other podcast on hell hell literature hell journeys yeah but some of them like there's yeah we're going to be padding out the medieval period with hell journeys i suspect yeah because uh what is reference that seems to be you know kind of a, a source for dante but yeah you mean dante didn't make it all up himself what no Sorry. Well, he drew really intensely from, from the Greeks. That was like his big thing, the Romans and the Greeks. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if there was like a lot of deep cuts into uh, their mythology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is, yeah. What about, there was, I, again, like I kept finding new places. <laughs> like I just, <laughs> I was like, make it stop. <laughs> but 
I found the world of darkness also. Right. Okay. World tell us darkness. more about the world of darkness. Like Vampire the Masquerade. <laughs> I, to me, you're just saying words. What does that mean? Oh, what is that? Uh, Coyote you, the Barkening. You, you lose goth points. That was the big role-playing game surge in the 90s that briefly gave goth street cred. Oh, damn. I missed that. I think I was in my grunge years. Okay. That's yeah. fair. So, there were no grunge role-playing games. There were no grunge vampires. <laughs> I feel like no Lost Boys. Yeah, yeah, that kind of kicked off. But in this context, I do not Mm -hmm. have a clue what you're talking about. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, so this is a Gnostic thing, um, which again we gotta we gotta talk about Gnostics because they have plenty of demons. They're really complicated. They're super complicated. But um, so uh, specifically in Mendeism, World of Darkness is is the underworld, and sometimes it's also called Shale. Because the classic Mandaic word is very, very similar. It's an S with a diacritical I-U-L. And I think that's a, I have to remember what diacritical that is, but it's the little crescent moon above the S. Yeah, it's adorable. But um, in one of the holy books, the Genzaraba um, and other Mandaean or Mandaean scripture, it is the kind of Gnostic version of hell. So it's, it's also the world of darkness. There's a Venn diagram. With shale. So when was Mandeism? Mandeism sounds like the worship of Mandy. Like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. She was my aunt. Really nice woman. <laughs> oh, Mandy. You were a Gnostic. <laughs> so when, when, when did this crop up? Uh, it looks to be about like 100 BCE, but it could also be shortly before the year zero maybe 200 bc okay roughly in that area just time enough to add another level of confusion to the local theologies why yes yes and so another oh yes again this is really interesting it's located beneath the earth and it's ruled by ur or leviathan oh neat oh yeah we know them and it's queen rua and she's the planet. She's the mother of the planets and the, the constellations. But another interesting thing. Oh, 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 oh. oh, yeah. Rua means breath or spirit. So it's the so, kind of the word for soul. Oh. And Gnostics are so cerebral. So maybe that's like an extended metaphor. I think it must be. I was wondering that. But we also start to get into a uh, Tehom here because the, the ocean of Sup uh, also lies. Tehom. <laughs> Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) So because it it it, uh, the ocean of sup is associated. It's it's in the world of darkness, separates um it's like the river sticks and it separates the world of darkness from the world of light. But Tehom in the book of Genesis is comparable to the uh ocean of sup and it's the the soul the great sea that the soul has to pass in the first level of ascending. Oh, that kind of universal so, crossing the water idea that is super duper common. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Gnostics, man, I feel like again, that could be a whole other Yeah, they are thing. really distressingly weird and complicated. It's like mm-hmm. they, they had to answer the question of where does evil come from? And they did it with as many moving parts as possible. Yes. It's true. Yes. <laughs> They're the Rube Goldberg of theology. Um, one one term that kind of kind of resonates with me there uh, is the idea of the um, the ocean as the underworld. 
And that kind of echoes the word abyss, which is used a little bit occasionally as another kind of hell-related word. It's it's really kind of a another version of Sheol. It's kind of the underworld and the darkness below. But it also keeps the kind of aquatic, oceanic depths element to it in its kind of connotative meanings. Mm-hmm. It's also specifically a realm for rebellious spirits and for a prison for demons. So, again, not a place for humans necessarily. It, it's where Jesus sent Legion, like the little piggies right? the abyss. <laughs> the little piggies. Yeah, 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 little <laughs> piggies. It's, it can be a synonym for shale, but it seems to be like a holding place or a doorway for infernal horrors. And the Hebrew word for that is, is tehom, which, is that what you said? Yes, mm-hmm. tehom. Right, right, right. Okay. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it's all, all connected. So, here's a question. This goes back to our person, place, or thing mm-hmm. discussion. So, Abaddon yes. is a place and also potentially the angel who is in charge of the abyss, right? Yes. And after the in the New Testament, it's not ambiguous. Like, he's okay. the name of the angel. In Revelations. Yeah, in yeah. Revelations. He is Satan, or he, yeah, he's person- He's a personification of evil. He's a Satan. He's kind of the angel of the end times. But in, he's an angel, and in some other stories, he's the spirit that will take the final ju- the souls to final judgment, or like he was hanging out in Jesus' tomb when he was resurrected. So he's kind of ambiguous there. But hmm. his name is like destruction, doom, the destroyer, the bottomless pit. The grave is naked before him, God, and destruction, Abaddon, has no covering. Job says of, like, God harrowing hell almost. Mm-hmm. He's kind of frequently in a pairing with death. So, like, Shale and Abaddon over and over again turns up. Death and destruction, hell and death. He's sometimes associated with Belial in a region of Sheol. So, mm-hmm. it really depends on, again, when and where. But an angel of destruction at the end of days is fairly accurate when he's not being a place or a concept. <laughs> I feel like we need to create a board game called Person, Place, or Thing, and <laughs> you have to just keep naming these things. The answer is and just- the iron. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 One of those. Sure. <laughs> um, I do have one more synonym for, for Old Testament hell that I'll throw out. It's a really minor one, uh, bore or the pit, but pit in the form of like cistern or well. So uh, it's an allegory for the underworld, sometimes in Isaiah and in Psalms. It's kind of near synonym for the grave. Uh, in Psalm 40, it's the cistern of roaring, which kind of ties <laughs> shield to the image of the raging sea. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. But Cistern of roaring. Cistern of roaring. And I, it's, that was a hard one for me to say. That's, that's, that's kind of fun to say. It is. So. But that's different from the pit of corruption. Right. It's just the pit. And I think that's kind of like the grave or whatever, or or the the down below. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll buy that. Do you have more side quests that are exciting? Only that I was excited that Doug the Edomite shows up again <laughs> as being in one of the levels <laughs> of Ghana. Well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> I feel like this is kind of a where's Waldo, like, where's Doug the Edomite now? <laughs> so. So. I feel like we've gone through a cloud of not understanding yes. and come out the other side. My, my takeaway from this is that when we have merch, I want it to say, curdle me like cheese <laughs> <laughs> on, the, on the dispatches bumper sticker. The dispatches, <laughs> curdle me like cheese. 
<laughs> then we could have like an image from the image from Titanic, like paint me like one of your French cheeses. You know. <laughs> 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 I'm a little brie. <laughs> Colonel me like one of your French cheeses. <laughs> On that note, I think that I'm going to call this a wrap. A cheese wrap, okay. maybe? I don't know. <laughs> for some of you, maybe we'll see you in Boston, and for others of you, we'll see you in hell. <laughs> Yay! Bye! Two different places. <laughs> Bye! This podcast is copyright 2023 by The Dispatchist and is Creative Commons. You're welcome to reuse with attribution. Look for us on your favorite podcast app. Say hi to us on Twitter or Gmail at The Dispatchist, no spaces. Check out our website, dispatch.ist, for episodes, show notes, and a variety of hellish resources.